1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Warrior U. If you are anything like me, then you see yourself as a life's work. I see myself as a project that can be changed, tweaked, and developed through motivation and education. I'm in the pursuit of simply being better than yesterday. If you do think like that, then this podcast is for you. Righto, let's dive in and see who we have as a guest today. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits, and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey gang, have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment, and it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative, but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them, truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website, and if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some uh, great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. All right, I'm actually now second time through <laughs> recording. Mark Wales, welcome to the Warrior You podcast. I'm just going to play with some music here um second bite of the cherry mate because we were six <laughs> minutes <warm> up. <laughs> we were six minutes in and then i realized that you've got to hit record that was a really funny story i was telling um Just, yeah i don't reckon you'll even remember it and you know what this button
1: if you have a look at this button
0: on this thing it's the biggest button on the goddamn board
1: like a, yeah it's like a nuclear launch button
0: yeah like do not not put that button on bram um righto straight off the bat what's the most exciting thing that you ever did in sasr take two
1: um best thing I ever did was the... the It was called Operation 2. It was a planned evacuation of Australians from Lebanon in 2008. Uh, Le- uh, Hezbollah had taken the city over. They're a designated terrorist organisation by a lot of Western forces. But um, they'd taken most of the city over. Um, they weren't sure what was going to happen. They were fighting with the government, and there was a lot of concern for the thousands and thousands of Aussies that were there. So they sent us over there and said start planning, start assisting for with the evacuation. And no one had any real idea of what was gonna happen or what I should do. So it was kind of left up to me and that was a, a really fun thing to do in a major city in the Middle East. It was it was cool.
0: Was that your I mean obviously that was probably one of the most exotic places you've ever been. <laughs> but was that the first thing you did as a as an officer in the military? Or no, in SAS? Um,
1: no. First thing I did operationally in SAS was um, it was actually the Protective Security Detachment, so the bodyguard work we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. That was, that was the early mm. jobs that we had going in there. And then, then we had a couple of Timor deployments, actually. Like, mm. Timor, I think it was my third. And oh, yeah, Emmerich. Yeah, yes. sec- Vaguely not Emmerich, it was something else. It was my second and third deployments to East Timor once to help Janana guzmao and the third one was the Renato job.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> Mate, sixteen years in the army, six in SASR. What compelled you to join the ADF?
1: I mentioned this before. I was talking about being a kid in Perth and being in Japanese class and What school? Leeming High School. Grew up South of the River. <laughs> um, and
0: most people in Perth will get that. Yeah. But yeah. if you're not in Perth, a, that's a thing.
1: How would you yeah, how would you say it? North of the river's like around the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, south River It was a little bit rougher back then I think
0: So it wasn't a private school Was it mate?
1: <laughs> No <laughs> And when no. did you find
0: out You hadn't when, we, when did you find out That you were the only guy That had been Not been to a private school When oh, you were at ADFA for- I think
1: When I was at I couldn't figure it out But on the first day or two I noticed I was the only guy Not wearing a suit and tie I had like my dad's Like <laughs> business shirt on And um, everyone else was like Tidy and jackets And awesome knots And I figured out this whole, The whole private school thing later yeah, right. Which was cool, but no, I was, I was proud to be from, from Leeming. That's where I grew up. And yeah, when, um, I was, when I was there, I saw all these pictures of the Iranian embassy siege that my mates showed me, and it was all these soldiers clad in black in the streets of London, storming this building in 1980, trying to rescue all these hostages um, that had been taken by these terrorists. So when I saw it, I'm sure you've seen the pictures, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool and pretty out in the open. Um, I thought, that's it, that's what I want to do in life. So
0: high school, you knew you, well, you thought to yourself, I'm going to go to SAS.
1: Yeah, from about grade nine, I think it was 1990. Why didn't you just rock up down to the barracks there and say, hey, here I am? Well, funny story, because I actually applied for work experience at SAS. And one of my teachers was like, you can't really do that. No one's kind of been down there before for work experience. But I applied and we called the barracks up because they had a uh, phone line back then you could call and somehow wrangled my way onto the base and did oh my god work experience yeah. down at the gym with Shane Saltmarsh oh you know, my so god was,
0: Jesus that just made my whole <laughs> body
1: tingle <laughs> it would just come off
0: just had a nervous response to that <laughs> it
1: was just Shane Saltmarsh was a physical train Thank instructor you. and he'd just come off his stint on TV as a gladiator oh god. and uh, he made me do every PT session every day when I was uh, you know. Yeah. 13 or 14 years old, but I loved it. It was great.
0: He, he walked onto the bus on my selection on the first day, and, and, I, and that broke me. Is, that was it. That was, it was my, that was my last day pretty much, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't quite, but it, was, it might as well have been. Um, He's very good at that. Yeah, we had a guy when, on my first year on team, because um, back then all, all of the key appointments were held by SAS operators, and um, one of the sergeants had a giant uh, painting in his office of the Sentinel. Um, which, is, which was actually of him, I think. Oh,
1: sweet.
0: <laughs> now I think of it, so you probably know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I remember I remember something similar to that from the Iranian embassy siege. Um, and also I remember the term, uh, when the rollerball starts, it can't be stopped. And I think that's one of the... That and the Falklands were, were the main reasons that I wanted to, to join the army back in the day. And then, and then obviously the Gulf War, that was all over TV, wasn't it? Mm. Um, so people want to hear about our selection experiences in particular how we got through selection and my story is a little bit different than your story because and we'll go about mine in in a moment but for yourself first of all you know how did you get into SAS selection like what was the process and then how did you get your way through it how did you how did you survive it
1: yeah so I remember the biggest step in that entire process was kind of committing mentally to doing it because you knew when you started there was going to be a whole bunch of hoops you had to jump through. Um, the chances of getting through weren't high. There was a chance of injury are high. So I remember thinking about it and saying, "Well, you joined a years ago to do this, so you better get started." <clears throat> so I started the training. Um, I think it was like a three month training course you did at home. Shane Saltmarsh designed that one, um, and then there was a pre selection kind of vetting process which took a couple of days. That was just a series of tests and checks and. Couple of force marches it wasn't anything too serious.
0: So with the with with Soldi's program, did you did you stick to that? Like religiously do that?
1: Not, I didn't stick to it religiously. So I did. I, I made sure I did the things that I wasn't great at. So some of the endurance stuff, some of the running stuff, which I hate, I made sure I did that. If it was if there were other things like heavy weights or something like that, I didn't want to do. Uh, I, I would skip that. But for the most part, I kind of stuck to it about eighty percent, I think, um, and I. Where I gave a bit of slack off, it was where I was I felt I had strength um, and one thing I didn't realize when I was starting that that it would only be the physical part is is only a small part of it like there's a threshold level you got to get to, and then after that the playing field is level, and it's just how much you you want to firstly how much you want to be there, secondly, can you do it without getting injured um, and so that did that initial vetting course I don't even know if they still do that um, and then once I'd passed that, they gave me the date for the selection course. I knew it was going to be three weeks. I think we had to keep clear, mm. and that was it. Got, what got what year gone. was that? That was
0: two thousand four. Two thousand four. Yep. Okay. Yeah, they. Yeah, up until recently, they were still doing the special forces entry test. Previous to that, which yep. was like a. Twenty-four hours or thirty-six hours or something right. like that. Yeah, which I think helps because it saves a lot of airfares.
1: Yeah, it would <laughs> save a lot of costs. Right?
0: Do you recall? I mean, I talked to Nick Caldwell about this, and he he doesn't remember some of the selection. Yeah. Like he just, you know, like we do a thing on commando selection called demarcation, which is about four days of deprivation, and and you do something similar, which I think is Happy Wanderer would be similar, would it?
1: Yeah, I can only speak to kind of the broad phases that I saw. I'm I'm guessing there's still something similar to this, but um, the first week was generally the, a conditioning phase where you did a bunch of physical tests. And a lot of the time, those tests would be indicators of whether you would be able to survive the training that was involved in SAS. So it'd be Force marches, pack runs, you know, claustrophobia testing, all these different small tests and some quite big that were tested of either your endurance or your um, physical capacity or your mental capacity. And that was designed to kind of weed people out early. So a lot of the people that hadn't prepared would kind of fall out in that first week. Second week was an endurance phase called Happy Wanderer. And that was a solo kind of force march navigation over long distances, over big hills, um, and I think that's a fairly well known phase. And then the th- final phase was a kind of teamwork phase where you're under heavy sleep and food deprivation, and you're expected to be able to lead and, and execute under those conditions twenty four seven. And so that's really designed to push you and see what you're like in a team. And that's um, where you,
0: that's that's the bit I think that Nick was saying that you can't remember much yeah, of. It's just no, like you like a zombie, like bit. a robot.
1: Yep. And yep. some of it's like a repressed memory. Like I remember going back in I think two thousand eight as an instructor on the course. Mm. And watching it a second time, I was just horrible. I was just like, you you (laughs) can relate to it and you're watching it going, there's no way I could do that now. Yeah, But I remember bits and pieces that I'd forgotten. Yeah, it's just horrible.
0: Yeah, I was the OC of selection in 2007. So I um, set up and ran both the SASR and commando selections for that year. And I couldn't believe the planning that went into it from both units actually and and Special Forces Training Centre back then um, and the scientific approach that they take. And the Board of Studies, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of top end businesses around the world that their HR reps should go and watch oh, that board of study. It's
1: extreme. And I think it's incredible. One thing that struck me even when I was going through it, it was I was like, I'd been seen by so many different people. I said, this is going to be a fair mm-hmm. process because I've literally, yeah. literally had 20 people look at me during the course of this selection um, phase.
0: Yeah. And is that audio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good doing stuff in a cafe, though. Like, I was to- my mate. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Merrick Watts or not, but he's a, he's a, he's a friend of mine and, and he gave me a heap of advice on, on how to run a um, podcast. And one of the things he said to me is like, mate, no matter what you do, do not ever do it in a cafe because you've got clinking and stuff like that and it's really distracting. You know what, Merrick? Anyway, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> we do things differently. Yeah. With selection, my, my final sort of like selection question, did, you, did anyone come up to you in the unit, you know, like a year later or something like that and go, oh, yeah, man, I remember seeing you on selection. You're like, I had no idea that you ever saw me.
1: Yeah, I think a couple of times people come over and say hello or introduce themselves and I felt like I hadn't seen them before, but they'd been on selection. But I think there was this unwritten kind of rule that you don't really talk about someone's time on selection because everyone recognizes you're actually worst in a lot of ways. Um, so once you're through, people kind of don't refer back to that period of you being in the unit. They just see it as that rite of passage, and, and yeah. once you're through, they don't talk about it.
0: Yeah, see my, so my experience was kind of different You know, for those that, that want to know about it, but, and not, not SASR selection because you know, I make no you know, secret of the fact that I stuffed that up, and that's fine because you live and learn you you move on and do other things but with commando selection we we had our whole company because we were the first commandos to go through the modern day um selection process for for the commando unit and as a as a corporal you know of a, of a heap of guys suddenly the whole spotlight is on you focuses on you and when you're a leader you have a lot more to give i also find that when people around me are failing for some reason that sort of like I don't know if you get this as well, but it props me up. When I see people start to bloody, you know, drop around me, it just just drives me harder.
1: Yeah, you have to step up, right? And one thing about this whole selection process is it looks daunting because it is hard to get through. The numbers of people that pass aren't high, but someone has to do it. And I, I think when I passed, I was probably a line and call. I was probably like borderline, like this guy, we could go either way with him, we'll give him a chance you don't actually have to be the best person out on the field. You've just got to finish the damn thing and your chances all of a sudden skyrocket to about 70%. So yep. there's something in that. I think sometimes you just got to just got to see if you can finish.
0: Be there at the end. Yep. One of the selection wing staff used to say to me, it's 100% guaranteed that if you don't apply, you won't pass. Exactly. <laughs> Which is a fair call. <laughs> so just quickly, because of the, the whole theme of the podcasts that I do is, is about being better than, than you were yesterday, Um, mental resilience and mental toughness do you think mental resilience or mental toughness is something you're either born with or do you think that you can train for it or do you think did you have to train for it for SAS selection or do you think it's something that you just found dug deep and found
1: yep so I think and I'm just thinking back to some of the things I've read about this as well because I know there's a lot of literature on it and some from actually university Pennsylvania around resilience and grit um, but I think a lot of it can be taught. I know some of it's innate. For me, I think it was always making sure you have the basics down. So diet, exercise, sleep is a big one because that kind of sets your foundation for resilience. And that's why they take that away from you when you're on selection to see what how you respond when you're not at your best. So for me, that's always been a big part of it. And then the final bit is how do you frame failure? Like, is that something you see as a complete setback or is that something you can use as an opportunity um, to grow? Because if you if you are constantly unsettled by failure, it's, it's not going to be great for you when you're in special ops because you're failing constantly. Every day you're doing something wrong. So I think that mindset's a really big part of it.
0: I like that the whole be comfortable... Well, don't try and fail, obviously, but be comfortable with the failures you've got and learn something from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I sort of think the same thing. I I think you're born with a degree of mental toughness, grit. But also, you know, it's it's like you watch people, little things things annoy some people. And what I found later in life, in in my 30s probably, was that if I start to approach every conversation or every interaction from a position of observation rather than interaction... So why has that person got the shits, or why is that person arguing with me, or why is that occurring? Rather than being intimately trapped in that moment, I find that I'm I'm a lot mentally tougher from that because a little shit doesn't bother me. Yeah, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and there's always an underlying reason for people's yeah. behaviour. If you, I guess what you're saying is yeah. look a bit deeper.
0: Yeah, well, become like an anthropologist and and study someone rather than be caught up in the moment with them. You know, it's yeah. like a, I heard a thing that Peter Brock said once about. Um, I think I've said this on the podcast before where you know someone's cut you off in the traffic and they're speeding and you've got the shits with them you've allowed that person to dictate that moment whereas you don't know what's going on in that person's life their mother could have just been diagnosed with cancer in their race at home yeah, it's got exactly. nothing to do with you yeah you know yeah you can control what you can control yep mm right moving on 10 tours of duty in total
1: yeah 10 total lucky because I think the period we joined at was kind of late 90s, coming out of a period of kind of deep peace. There have been these interventions around the end of the Cold War, kind of late 80s, early Mm. 90s, peace dividend for about a decade. Mm. And then a couple of humanitarian interventions by the UN, Australia being involved in some of them in the 90s, which was Rwanda, Mm. Somalia and a few others. And then East Timor started in the late 90s. And I don't think the Australian Army has stopped since the late 90s and then September eleven all the way through to kind of now. I think it's mm. still going. It was a period of kind of unprecedented operational activity and we were lucky to kind of walk straight into that. Yeah. Um, so for you and me, there were a lot of trips mm. uh, for, especially the Middle East, but also the region here in the, in the South Pacific.
0: And that's, well, that's quietening down now, isn't it? I mean, I've met yeah, guys in the regiment now that haven't that haven't deployed anywhere recently. Right, right. Um, I'm sure they will, but yeah, it seems to be quietening down. Although stuff that's going on in the media at the moment... <laughs> Never know. Never know. Did ten ten operational tours that take its toll
1: on you? Yeah, I think for me, I remember the the stress really dialed up um, during the heavy combat periods from kind of two thousand and seven for me all the way through to two thousand and ten. So that was that was marked by the surge in Afghanistan, heavy casualties in SOTG. Mm. Um, My first tour of duty as a true commander in Afghanistan was. It was pretty solid It was hard We lost Matthew Locke He was shot and killed In mm. um, a battle in the Truro Valley And a few others Wounded in an IED strike So that was like A very heavy mm. introduction to ops And then I think from there it, I, don't, I think we got better As a force As a SOTG But again They got better as well casualties mm. climbed a, a fair bit in, in the later part And then we started There were the green on blue Attacks as well So I think that whole period was hard. It took a huge toll on me. I had to, after my first trip, I came home and was basically, I basically disconnected myself from my entire family. Mm. Didn't didn't really realise until a few months into it. Mm. Um, went and got help from a psychologist. I wasn't sleeping. wasn't wasn't able to work really. And at that point, I realised after talking to a few psychs and then a neuroscientist, I realised it was the only person that was going to help rebuild myself was me Mm. no one can really do it for you i don't think they can help in different ways but Mm. it's really up to the individual and that's where this neuroscientist started telling me about hey these are the parts of your brain you use when your life is under threat you bench all these other parts that are more complex and um related to empathy and whatnot he goes you got to rebuild that and this is how you do it he gave showed me a routine and how to sleep and diet and exercise and all that stuff is just the basics but that it's the path for me rebuilding, and it's the only reason I was able to keep working.
0: And um, and w- was that um, official diagnosis of PTSD? Yeah,
1: PTSD, depression. Yeah, um, after my first tour, um, and I wasn't surprised. I only told, I only told close friends and family mm. just so they knew. Didn't really tell anyone at work too broadly. Just my boss and a few of my immediate mates. And part of that was you didn't want to. I didn't want that stigma attached to me, and you wanted to keep working. You didn't want to sidelined and say well that guy needs time off you wanted to still be in the mix so it's kind of tough i think i'm sure it's better now but back then i definitely didn't want to say anything about it
0: yeah. and you were so what are you six two six three six three and hundred and what
1: about, i feel a little bit heavier now about 110
0: <laughs> right you're a big unit you're one of the biggest dudes i've you know had the pleasure of spending time with and when, when i heard that that you you know were suffering in that way i was like what the fuck because like yeah, yeah. you're the ultimate yep. SAS bloody operator, right? And yep. then you hear that. But it made me... Yeah, yep. I guess I, I had some... And I've told people this before, like that survivor's guilt. Why haven't I got PTSD? Yep. You know? Yep. Um, because, you know, arguably I've seen shit, done shit. But it just affects people differently. And, yep. and it's made me realise how... Just how different we all are, you Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, and and also you know, I'd spend a lot of time with you on different courses and other things over the years before well during and before um I saw you in two thousand ten. I remember seeing you then and going, gee, what's up with Walesy? It's like, why isn't he talking to me the prick? Yeah. <laughs> you know. We're in the mess one day and I'm like, Hey man, how you doing? You're like, Yeah, whatever, dude, and like just getting back to your coffee. I was like, What the fuck? Rude bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, you know, it made it made such sense to me later. Yeah, yeah, I
1: think there's a bit of you know, a bit of social isolation mm. I definitely put myself through yeah. and it's hard because when you, you – I, I, I knew something was wrong and always worried if I mm. had taken any casualties in my own team, mm. I knew I would respond to it badly because I, mm. I just had that fear. I knew it would be very, very hard. And then on my first trip it happened and then mm. um, it's, it's small compared to what a family has to go through when they lose something, but mm. it still affects your life quite a lot. So for me it was a long road to kind of repairing myself mm. and the habits I learned to rebuild myself and come good again – the habits I still use today Mm. in business, because that's what kind of keeps me ahead of, ahead of things.
0: Yeah. And we, when I got back from my last tour, I went straight from a, you know, platoon commander and then promoted to major and then, and then taking out big units outside the wire to working in an international engagement cell in Bungandor (laughs) by myself. And it was the worst, the worst possible, (laughs) the worst possible thing to do to a guy, you know, the worst posting possible out, you know, and I, I guess I never really forgave everyone, a, like almost the CO, you know, the careers managers, because they don't think about that shit. You no know, right. it's like you've just done, and I was tired, man. You just yeah. And I've just done 10 months and, and eight months of that was yep. almost solid fighting. And yep. then, and then, and here I am. Oh, and then I went straight on grade two.
1: Yeah. For major.
0: Just to talk like, You know, and so we're talking about <laughs> chimerians and, exactly. and I'm like, what the fuck are you people talking about? Um, Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um yeah, so I don't think we give too much thought to it. And and I think it's really good for someone like yourself to say, you know, I had some issues and I've rebuilt myself and here I am because yeah. the, you know, and and it wasn't that you were just tired. Like a lot of us are just tired, but you know, it really weighed on you heavily and you and you you know, not only did you flourish from it. I mean, Dan Pronk talks about that traumatic growth, yeah. Yeah. you know, which which I know he didn't coin that, but he he talks about it a lot and he's mm. Yeah, he's on, he's definitely on. We should talk about that more, yeah.
1: because yeah, um, it's like those experiences are like rocket fuel. If you mishandle them, they can kill you. Mm. But if you um use it for growth later on, it can really mm. propel you along. So mm. I think he's he's nailed that,
0: yeah. Well, so just back to we'll get on to Wharton in a sec, but just back to SAS. Um, you were you a landy, watery,
1: I was a lander. ops yeah did you love it um it's funny i really wanted to be in water because i grew up on the coast love water um not mechanical at all so i had to struggle through that but um got to do the motorbike course which is great and has the highest injury rate in adf i think so that was it was fun it was fun doing all those courses i really really loved it and long-range vehicle patrols yeah, it's, they never felt that long-range because you're always kind mm. of you're driving from one thing to the next and, mm. and setting up and moving to a target. So it just felt like another yeah. mode of moving around, really. It wasn't anything too technical.
0: My mate, uh, Mike Glover, I don't know if you know Mike Glover in the States at all. Yeah, name, yeah. He's doing a solo trip from one end of the States to the to the top of the continent Yeah, in his um, t- Tacoma. Is that how you say it? That Toyota thing? Yeah. Completely That's unsupported, cool. taking only carrying the fuel on the vehicle. Wow. Um, Yeah, taking uh, solar panels to charge everything and and eating whatever he can hunt on the way (laughs) just to show that he can do it because he used to do that in in the ODA days. (laughs) Wow, good on him. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch this space. Yeah, Yeah. so Wharton, what I want to know about, well, first of all, why Wharton? I mean, obviously it's prestigious, but why an Ivy League school yeah, Out of Australia rather than...
1: Yeah. This this came up... When I was a kid, I wanted to go to the US to play American football. All I <clears throat> thought I could go over and make a career out of it. My parents didn't take me seriously, so they didn't send me. Um, and then years later, when I was in the military, I remember visiting New York City and just being captivated by kind of the US and how big and exciting things are there. Um, on the last tour I did, I was thinking about a career switch because we'd we'd been working hard for years and I was thinking... Um, this could be as good, good a time as any to, to build a whole new career because the alternative was a lot of time in Canberra, which didn't excite me. Yeah, so I started – I read a book that was about Harvard Business School and about a guy, a journalist, that went through there for, for two years. And I thought the full-time MBA in the US looks like a great way to transition. You get two years of study. Um, when you get out, your opportunities are, are outstanding – but then when I did my homework about how to actually get in, it's another kind of selection process. There's this standardised tests you got to meet. There's all these essays you got to do, interviews, and only then do you get this maybe 10% chance of getting into one of these schools. So um, I thought I definitely want to do it. Uh, I applied for Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, which were the top kind of three, I guess, in the US.
0: Why do I get the feeling that this is just another challenge like there's a selection process. <laughs> exactly. So I'm gonna put myself through this.
1: Yeah, it was it, it was funny because in some ways I'm more proud of this than I am of the SAS because I'm the SAS I wanted to do that my whole life. This I kind of I had to kind of move quickly and I really from start to finish it was about a two year process where I had to look really closely at how to get in and then start practicing for it. And I'd, i was at Duntroon as an instructor by this point and I would come home every night and worked for about three or four hours just at my desk trying to figure out the best approach to get in. But the one thing was this standardised test that I had to try and get. And I had to sit it four times. I had to take the bus from Canberra to Sydney to sit it. I had to overnight there.
0: But surely you were getting better each time.
1: Yeah, you, you would think that. I wrote this down. I, I got, I think I got better for the first two. The third one, I went backwards. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Maybe I'm just not right for this. And I thought I'd do one more. And I got the... Test score I needed on my fourth shot, and then started my application, and, and that got me into Wharton. I flew to Philadelphia to do the, the interview, and I think if you're military, always show up in person because we, you know, we carry ourselves well compared to the average average Joe off right. the street, right? So that was um, one of my one of my tips.
0: And wh- why why Ivy League, or, or was it just it just was what it was?
1: I just no, I just think if you're gonna if you're gonna jump. Aim for the absolute top. Jesus. Because even then, if you, if you don't quite get the absolute top, you'll land somewhere yeah. in, the, in the ballpark, right? And uh, I didn't get Harvard or Stanford. Yeah. Um, when I went to Wharton, I realized I had a really strong relationship with veterans mm. because the head of admissions there, who was Mary Ellen Lamb, just loved it. And not just any old veteran. They would take a ton of special ops, mm. men and women, um, pilots from the 160th. One of my best mates was an instructor at Top Gun, so um, there are all these cool, like like killer military people there, and I just thought these guys are outstanding. I'd love to join.
0: I've told you my degree is in international relations at UNE. Yep. But What I don't tell many people is I was doing an MBA at UNE at the same time. Yep. And um, failed accounting four times, <laughs> so I'm so I'm now the proud owner of a graduate certificate in business. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Fucking accounting dude, Mate, account it's like, hard. It's the black art. <laughs> like they hard. should have that as a squadron in SAS oh, because it's like, yeah, it's it. all bullshit. Yeah, yeah it's like, hard. pe accountants, they're just fooling everyone. There's no there's no structure to yeah. it. I couldn't work it no, out. It
1: is it is tricky.
0: Yeah. So one thing that came up that you that you said someone. Someone, someone's fanboying you on my Instagram like Sweet. saying, oh, this guy's awesome and, you know, I can't believe he went to Wharton and then you said, yeah, well, I'll tell you about my academic probation. <laughs> exactly. Crack on, mate.
1: <laughs> all right, now, yeah, i have put myself in the corner of that one. So when I got there, this was my first stint ever outside the military. I'm in an entirely new environment. I'm surrounded by people in their mid to the late 20s, all professionals out of, you know, banking, consulting, startups, all American Um, None of my old crowd to hang around with So it's really an entirely new I'm basically starting again in a new area I was partying quite a bit (laughs) I went out with a lot of them I was just excited to be out of the military And doing something completely different So I would be out taking advantage of all the opportunities that were coming up Joined the rugby team, played a lot of rugby In my misplaced self-confidence I thought I could probably study a little bit and I'll still be alright I didn't realise how competitive the American education system is and you're actually graded against your classmates. So if you're in the bottom 10% of your class, you get what's called a LT. It's called a lowest 10%, lowest 10th percentile, basically. If you accrue enough of those, you get kicked out of the school. Jesus. Um, in my first six months, I accrued a few of those. <laughs> so I got marched into Mary Ellen Lamb's office and she sits down and goes, stop drinking, stop chasing girls, start studying.
0: Jesus, going to kick you out. straight up. And I
1: was like, okay. And so I, I left and realized, I just like knuckled down. I just started doing my homework, um, started competing. I actually started preparing for the boxing tournament. They have a charity boxing mm. match every year,
0: which means um, you're not drinking.
1: Which means I, I, I peeled back everything. And mm. basically, it took me probably about three more months to turn my grades around. Um, and then when I started doing entrepreneurship courses, then I started getting really good grades. Studying because like, you were interested in it, right? Yeah, actually it was motivated. Did you win the boxing guy. match, by the way? I actually didn't know I was Jesus. lost on split decision. So yeah, didn't get knocked down, which is great. But um, was he good? Oh, it was amazing. It was a, it was a card. It was a card fight, and it was meant to be against one guy from the law school because that's who we fight. He pulled out two weeks before. Um, and so they I, put Mike Tyson in. You know, they put a. They, they go oh we'll go find someone I've, I didn't think they would and in Philly they grabbed this guy that was an ex um, UFC like semi-professional like he fought mm. he'd been paid but not at a high level he came and fought and uh, he was an ex-marine yeah. he had a purple heart from Jesus yeah was so everyone was, was excited was he good <laughs> he was good everyone was excited yeah. like oh my god these two yeah. veterans are going to fight um, and it was a massive battle, and we all walked out with the pageantry, yeah. and everyone had their uniforms on. It was, it was pretty funny, and um, there were a thousand screaming kids there, so it was a great night.
0: That's awesome. And, that, and that, that basically turned you around? Yeah, I think that... Was that the structure of the training, would you say? Yeah, it was
1: it was getting those basics back, so getting the rest... Yeah, rest, diet, exercise. They yeah, were, all, the things, the things all the things you knew you should and, have been doing. And mindset, like actually start working, <laughs> otherwise you're going to get kicked out.
0: So so now you're the, is it, are you the co-founder or founder? Founder. Founder of Kill Capture. Yep. Um, just tell everyone what Kill Capture is and then explain why you went down to, into the murky world of fashion.
1: Yeah, so I thought when I was in my last trip in Afghanistan, we started getting the cry-precision uniforms, which are these... Ultra streamlined, really functional outfits that were expensive. I think they were like four hundred dollars an outfit, roughly. Um, compare them to our old, like ADF issued uniforms, which were bloody terrible. These things were like fairly space aged I remember talking to my mates and thinking, God, if you could take some of these design features and build them into streetwear, it'd be freaking cool. Um, and then when I was at business school, I started to kind of trying to bring the idea to fruition, but I just didn't know how to. I remember pitching a business school contest and I thought, what what do I call it? I call it something edgy like Kill Capture, which ran mission profiles in Afghanistan. So I bought the website and then I tried to put in a business contest. Um, the feedback I got from the business uh, guys that were judges was terrible. They're like, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. Um, this is an offensive <laughs> name. Um, don't, don't do this. And so I did it anyway. I, I built a prototype jacket which I'd had this idea of building a cool jacket so I couldn't find one when I went to the US and wanted to buy my own um, so I built the jacket built the design features in that were unique to special ops and just try to create a different angle on fashion because I was always interested in it but there were no kind of hard hitting authentic brands brands like Burberry, the trench coats they used to um, supply trench coats, they won the contract to supply them to British officers back in World War I before that, they were a tiny company. So that's their heritage. That's what they're known for. But 50 or you know, 100 years later almost, they've gone away from that dramatically. So there's no authentic clothing brands left that are from that world. So I wanted to be one of the first ones to And it's created. just
0: dawned on me that the ADF doesn't have a cool issued leather jacket. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Watch this space. And yeah. Cosgrove's not there, so at least you know it'll fit whoever's there. <laughs> Exactly. Is that too hard? <laughs> no. Um, so did you start to did you start to work on Kill Capture at, at Wharton itself, like actually as a project?
1: Yeah, so there was an entrepreneurship class you could take. After you'd taken the basics, the, the theory and practice of entrepreneurship, you could do this other one where the class was every week you start your own business and every week you come in and report on that progress, which is a pretty cool idea, right? You're actually starting a real business um, as a subject. And so... That is cool. Yeah, I started doing that and and wasn't sure how to approach it and spent a bit of money here and there, but couldn't really build it. And it wasn't until uh, really we started doing photo shoots that captured kind of the vision of the brand that I wanted. And then we went to Texas and got helicopters in and some weapons and it was kind of a bit more edgy than a normal fashion shoot. Um, Later on, we took the weapons out because it's just a bit too controversial. But um, we did get Mad Dog, who is the outgoing U.S. Secretary of Defense. He came to a fashion shoot. Yeah, I've um, seen the
0: photos of General Mattis yeah, wearing the...
1: <laughs> yeah, that was cool. So we we managed to get him before he... When he was out of CENTCOM, he was CENCOM Commander, basically CENTCOM, um, he was between jobs. We got him out to one of these photo shoots um, just on a... By luck, because one of my mates, his old man, had served with him in Iraq, and through a third-hand connection, he agreed to come out to this photo shoot. Um, we got two photos of them in the jacket, and there's one of them. So it was just little things like that, a little bit of PR here and there. And we managed to grow it slowly.
0: Some girl just walked past the window then, and I'm like, oh, I know her. I've seen her on Survivor. And then I realise <laughs> it's your wife.
1: <laughs> probably, got the, probably got the bug.
0: Um, so w- with regards to y- when you travelled to New York, for instance, yep. is that like the best couple of weeks, month? Is it just oh, you're just awesome. walking around? Yeah, what what, awesome. what the hell are you doing? Because all I see is you... Walking through the streets, looking <laughs> awesome, talking on your on your on your AirPods yeah. about how how shit's turning, turn, oh, everything's mate. going to shit, and you you always have this massive grin on your face. So yeah, yeah. what is going on in New York?
1: Um, so generally, what I'll do is I'll, f- I'll take a bunch of pre-orders. I'll fly into New York and do a production run of one series of jackets. Um, generally, when I go and I'm dealing with it, about eight different providers. I select and build. I basically, get all the raw materials in myself. Um, so. Something always goes wrong. There's always something late. Um, and the last time it was a bit of a shambles. So, and I had come out of glandular fever, so it was like a, I was only working five-hour days there. So it was just a bit tricky. But it's fun because I work probably half the day and the other half of the day I catch up with mates from Warden and people I work with at McKinsey and whatnot. And it's good. It's New York. It's fun.
0: And so, so you have all these people like on speed dial, all these people are putting bits and pieces together. So it's yeah. proper project management
1: yeah it's basically hurting hurting cats and I think at the start it's a co- it's a contest to see who can rip off the new person as quickly as possible before they run out of money because all these kids going to the garment district starry-eyed wanting to do a fashion label they've yeah. just come out of Parsons school of business and people just decimate them like, really? like bit by bit yeah they just overcharge them um and for me, it's taken years to get to the point where people are like, well, this guy's not going to go away.
0: Yeah. So um, it's, it's legitimately your business, right? Kill Capture.
1: Yeah. Basically, it's, it's it's a small business, but I think the concept behind it is we want to create yeah a new segment of luxury fashion, which is tough luxury. It doesn't really exist yet. I think it's a segment yeah. that can connect a whole uh, group of men especially that have been ignored by fashion mm. into this world. And it was always meant to be a bridge for people leaving either uniform services or institutions or high-performing teams that can go into civilian world and take a bit of a uniform with them. <laughs> Starting to pick up the, uh, the food delivery. S- anyway.
0: Staff are really sort of ramping it up in the kitchen. Um, well, that's good to have that as a backdrop, though. So, which leads me on to Survivor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what we're seeing on the cameras is that what's really happening is it are you, are you actually there surviving or is it is it are you are you pan you know pampered and you've got fluffers and you know all these people yeah. like putting makeup on you and stuff like that mate? yeah
1: when i when i got there i was just waiting for them to call cut and roll out the uh catering mm. tents and the mm. and the um shelters but man never came and we just <laughs> we didn't get any food you got like rice uh and if you if it was raining you couldn't cook the rice you didn't eat is that so, right, mate? We spent about forty eight hours. With we didn't eat a thing. Yeah, a few bits of coconut. So it was. Uh, it's genuinely pretty hard, and they wear people down pretty quick. Yeah, and it creates interesting dynamics. You don't need to do much. Was it be interesting? Was it a good experience? Yeah, it was great. I'd never done anything with TV, so to see how they build characters and yeah. storylines, and I didn't realise that at the time when I was applying. But you don't apply as like for me. I don't apply as Mark Wales, my own individual person. You apply as a character. Oh, yeah. And for me, it was going to be, oh, you're the Special Forces guy that's, used to, that's now in fashion and you're not going to tell anyone you're in Special Forces. And so they then kind of present you to the audience in that way. Yeah. I didn't realize it early on, but you don't have to act as yourself. You can actually um, occupy this character and behave yeah. as this character. So as it, it took me a little bit of time to realize that was what was going on. And then I started playing along with that. And that, that, was, that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome to watch. Actually, it was good fun watching someone and two years in a row watching people who yeah, I knew from yeah. the command.
1: Right? Did you know? Um, oh, who was the other Steve. Person you... Steve Willis. Steve Willis. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was
0: he was in my team. Yeah. He right. was one of my one of the soldiers right. in my team yeah, did, yeah, years ago. Boy. Yeah, and yeah, and I think he went in there, everyone knowing yeah. who he was too, yeah. and he was trying to play it down. Like I watched him throw events that he would have yeah. <laughs> exactly, um, and and so really Survivor, I guess, marks that coming out almost of SAS, doesn't it? Because there's no turning back from that. You're no longer a protected identity. It's like, here I am. you know, And you can't, you know, it's like I'm out in the open. And now I'm a, and also, and I I say this um, with the utmost respect. uh, Well, I'll frame it another way. When I tell people, when they say to me, you know, what do you do? Who are you? I, I now can say, I feel like I can say, well, I'm an author. Yeah, that's that's my thing. It's my yeah. that's what I hang my hat on now. Yep. I don't feel like I'm fake anymore. Yep. And I wonder, is it the same for you? Like after the Survivor, you say, "Well, you know, I own a fashion label. Yep. I'm a that's my that's my thing."
1: Yeah, I think psychologically, it's it's hard to step out of um, the norms and the culture of the world that you were mm. once a part of, and you love more than anything. You're probably proud of that heritage that you've got. For me. I knew I was burning my boats, kind of figuratively speaking, when I started along the kill capture line. So I'm like, this is promoting my background as a special ops guy. Yeah, and you're you're part of the... Part of it. Yeah. And I think when I was putting those photos up, I remember being in a cold sweat going, this is like, there's no turning back from this. And once they're on the net, that's it, you're, um, you're out. And so I think as I went along and I started to separate myself from that world, I felt a lot more freedom... And I'm still really proud of that, but I'm also proud of having kind of moved on and gone to a new world. And Survivor again was another another step in that process.
0: Yeah. And you're comfortable with that now, with like putting those photos out there. From a business perspective.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad. I don't think they're Mm. like I don't think they're the best thing in the world, but it's for me it's a great way to step into a new field completely and yeah. kind of not worry, not think about turning back. It's, it's kind of liberating.
0: Um, as well as a lot of young people listening to this who, who would want to join SF or just who are in the military listening to this, what advice would you have for not only them but there would also be people from, I assume, SASR and commandos listening to this now, listening to two old majors who've become moderately successful outside of the military? What advice would you have for those guys in the future?
1: I'd say when you're in the military, go as far as you can, whether it's in you know, the unit you want to join or your rank or whatnot, and run as hard as you can for as long as you can and then stop and leave before you become part of the furniture and you don't have anything fresh to offer. Then turn your attention to some other field that you really love and it's you find it motivating because that's where you, you're able to deliver something great and you won't become jaded Um and I think there's a whole bunch of rules, unwritten rules that govern people once they leave the military. And it's silly because you don't actually belong to them anymore. As long as you're not revealing secrets that can you know, harm people or whatnot, um, you don't have to follow any of those rules. And there are a lot of unwritten rules. It's like go away quietly, get on with your life, um, don't be in the public eye. Like, and I don't believe you should necessarily subscribe to that. If you want to do something different, write a book. Mm. Go on, do something on TV. Go and do it. Like, that's, it's, it's up to you to think of something great you're excited about and mm. work hard on that. So I think go as hard as you can in the military and when you decide you want to leave, it's take a lot of time to transition because it is a, a tricky process if you just cut the cord and jump. Um, and then once you're out, do what mm. you love.
0: Yeah, I had a conversation with Mark Donaldson about this a while back and mm. just told him I was copping a little bit of stick from some people with regards to, you know, writing military fiction. And, um, and he said, yeah, well, they're still in the military and they don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't understand what it's like to be a civilian and have to fight for your food. Yeah, yeah, you, um, you, you have to... Something along those lines. He's bloody... Yeah, he's right.
1: You're right. You have to sing for your supper, right? And if you're... One of my rules That's is... That's your if, child out there is yelling. Harry's um, <laughs> voice in his protest. <laughs> if you're creating something you're getting criticism at the same time it's a pretty good indicator you're doing something that's mm. probably good because mm. um people some people try and shut that down I same thing with kill capture right? i pop flack for that and initially i was thrown by it and later mm. on i was like actually this is a good thing
0: yeah i couldn't i didn't realize how many people there are that just like reading military fiction
1: yeah right awesome. and
0: i mean and and who better to write it than someone that's actually done it, done it? Yep. yeah same with. Same with your jackets. I mean, I, I own one of your jackets, fully paid for. I might add.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: We've um, got to support each other. Um, but yeah, who better to make you know tough modern fashion than a guy who's had to wear bloody crappy clothes and yeah, yeah. and,
1: and, and fight in the.
0: And I was I was a little bit um, disappointed though, Mark. i got to say that you didn't capture the uh, that essence of you know when you're lying behind a, a wall and then you get an RPG or a whole heap of rounds smashing above you and then all that. I'm not sure what you would call it, what the, what the actual official name is, but whatever that dust is that's so fine that gets between your collar and your, the sweat on your neck that you couldn't capture that in your jacket. Oh,
1: it's special. No, it's I've introduced the fur collar to clean it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's designed for that. So.
0: Um, whereabouts can people find out more about uh, Kill Capture as a brand or you as a person or, you know, what... The, uh, the leadership stuff that you do as well.
1: Yep. So um, Kill Capture, we've got a site set up at www.killcapture.com. And that's K's. Um, capture with a K. Uh, and so that's the website. And then we're on Instagram and, and Facebook as well. Um, the other stuff I do with speaking is done through a bureau, and that's just related to talking about um, resilience and leadership based on stuff I learned in the military and then still apply today in business because I think those patterns are unique to any human competition, no matter what field it is. So I do that through ICMI, which is a speaking bureau. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool.
0: Mark Wales, major. Mark Wales. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Obstacle racing is all the rage across the world. And here in Australia, we are sport for quality. If you want to test your physical and mental toughness, then get outside and compete in True Grit. It's a military-inspired obstacle course. I know it's legit because I served in Special Forces with the co-founder and managing director, Adam McNamee. And to celebrate our bromance, the good dudes at True Grip have created a discount code for listeners of this podcast. Use the code WARRIORU2019. That's WARRIORU2019 for 10% off every one of the 2019 events. And hopefully, I'll see you there. Wearing one of my Warrior U t shirts. Catch ya, gang. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces operator and officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture. Lessons are self-paced, and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though, is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the defense force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors, and even some Special Forces Selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. There's a one-off payment of $99 for the complete program. Check out the website on www.warrioru.com.au. That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor and then our guest. Thank you. The cat